Today we're going to talk about a, a topic which is extremely controversial, which is uh, the Torah's position on slavery. Because even though this wouldn't have been a question for thousands of years, because it was universally accepted that there was a concept of slavery, uh, but in today's world where slavery is outlawed and slavery is looked on as being unethical, inhumane, so the question often comes up that how, how could the Torah condone slavery in the context of Evaknani? In the context of Evaknani, that a person is allowed to own slaves, there's the rules of how a person is to treat slaves, but the Torah doesn't have a problem with the idea of slavery per se on its own. Okay, so as always, when one's confronted with the principle of Torah, or something we see that Torah accepts, as compared to the worldview of society. The worldview of society which thinks differently. Then there's two approaches one could try and take. One is to try and explain the Torah through the lens of the eyes of society, which might provide a satisfactory answer for the person who has the worldview of society and is asking the question. But the question is, is it really true? Is it really true? Is that what the Torah meant? Or the other option is to try and explain the Torah's position, taking into consideration that love dafka, that's a starting point where people are thinking, but okay, nevertheless, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm explaining the Torah's stand from where the Torah began from. And uh, as best as I can, I will explain it. But uh, it doesn't mean that necessarily, not necessarily what everybody believes as in their system or in their world you know, their world's concept or in their system of values is what the Torah thinks for example I'm just going to for a minute because it's really a discussion it's own right I'm just going to use the marshal to explain the idea for example in today's world where any kind of relationship is considered uh, allowed and is considered as on a par of being normal as anything else so the fact that the Torah says that the person gets skiller gets stoned for uh, homosexuality or any of these other crimes led to rise will strike people as being uh, and their value system as being wrong and we'll have to explain or try and justify or forgive the Torah based on the way they look at it we'll have to take the other approach and explain why the Torah looks at morality and then they're wrong well, they, again we don't have to necessarily get them to agree with us that's not the point we're not trying to make the Torah user friendly the point is to try and explain the Torah's position so we can understand it and then the person has to be willing to think of it honestly and open to other options to what is being brought up with in a liberal culture and hopefully be able to hear the terrorist position as well. And saying it applies to slavery. Talking about the topic of slavery is coming based on a world which is attuned to thinking of slavery as being wrong, as being immoral, as being inhumane, like I said previously. So we have to first understand why the world thinks like that and then we can present where the terrorist perspective starts from. Okay, so... Basically, there are two factors. There are two factors which are the underlying principles of why the notion is that slavery is considered inexcusably correct, wrong. And they're both values which we have to then see does the Torah respect or accept either of them. The first one was really the battle cry of the French Revolution, which actually triggered, it took time, but that was triggered the whole idea of equality equality, all people are equal 
all people are equal, and therefore there's no moral right that one person has over another person. There's no system that there's some people have blue blood and other people are commoners and other people are less than that. But everybody's created equal. Everybody's created equal, and uh, if that's the case, then what right do you have to, so to speak, subjugate another human being? Uh, maybe you'd be able to employ them if he's a willing participant to being employed and he's been given fair remuneration, right, or whatever it is. Okay, that's a trade. But to, to exercise rights over somebody else and to feel that you're in charge of another person, that, that goes against the, the universal principle of equality, that any human being is the same. That's the first point. The second point is it goes against the personal principle of justice. It goes against the principle of justice. And that is that there's what's fair and there's what's not fair. There's what's right and what's wrong. And look, the motto of any, let's say, what's meant to be a fair judicial system is that might doesn't make right. The fact that I'm more powerful, the fact that I'm in a stronger position, doesn't justify what I'm doing if what I'm doing is wrong. So whereas if the world had been working with a system that whoever is the more powerful warlord will conquer the neighboring village and subjugate all the people there just because he's stronger than them, and now they've been forced into being slaves, okay, so then that's, uh, that, that's his prerogative as being the victor. And it goes against the principle of justice, and that is that there's what's right and what's wrong, and the fact that a person is more of an aggressor or more powerful doesn't make them right. Okay, so those are the two, yeah. Isn't there also like a point in between, and that is that? What's I say about these two points? Okay, so let's start with the let's start with the, the second one first, because when we talk about the justice system, so here the Torah doesn't say so different. 100%. The Torah also has rules, and the Torah has also got a, a legal code which provides for avodah too. Just like it's written in the Rambam, that a person is not allowed to beat his evidence necessarily, and if a person kills an evidence, he's high of misa. Is that even in the Kanani? He was only in the Kanani. Right. And, and, he's not, and if a person kills an evidence, in certain circumstances, he'll be high of misa too. That there is a, so to speak, a, a legal a system which protects the volume too, which wasn't the case in human history. Human history, slaves had absolutely no rights, no recourse to law, and uh, one could do with them as they wished, and there was no. It was only starting. So the idea of a slave is being treated as a person with zero rights, pretty much how the Nazis in Machshon treated the Jews. And you can do whatever you want because no one cares and there's no accountability at all for murder, for torture, for whatever person wants to do. Um, so that, that, that we're agreeing isn't what slavery is meant to be. And if that's the picture we're painting in our mind of what a slave was, it wasn't the picture which was created for Nevek Okay, but now let's go with the Ica point. And that is the, in the institution of slavery. Let's take the injust, injustice out of it, the institution of slavery. Would it be Mutter or would it be Asa? So here we see an interesting point. And this brings us back to an analysis of the first point we mentioned. And that is, what does Israel hold of this idea of equality? And that is, can... Where, how far does the Torah allow slavery to go? In other words, is there, let's say, a Moabi buys an Amoni as a slave. Does a slavery like that work? Can one guy coin another guy as an Evid? This is a discussion. That uh, if, if the din of Evid, of Evid, so to speak, applies to one guy um, buying from another guy, 
In other words, the Pasuk says that you can buy from them, and that's why Gemara is Medai, because they can't buy from you. And according to another Mandom, the Gemara, they can't buy from each other either, which means that the Torah doesn't, the Torah is very specific, limits in slavery. It's not like anybody can buy anyone as a slave. And there's even a day that the idea of slavery is only that a Jew can acquire a non-Jew in that circumstance, not that a random non-Jew can acquire each other. That's a discussion in Tanoi. Okay, so then, where's it coming from? Where's it coming from? So, the, like I said, so therefore it's not, okay, it's not open-ended. But the Torah does allow slavery from... Not like, like the Pasuk says, not from another Jew that has its own din of every not from the Shevin almost that's a different category that have to be destroyed, but from the other nations, from that you can buy slaves from the Torah allows that. And the modern has certain rights over a slave, like I said, anything the slave owns or will be able to profit belongs to the Adon, and you can force them to stay with him, whatever it's going to be. Where's, but where's it coming from? Why does, the, why does such a right exist? Why does such a right exist? So, the Kuzari, when he talks about, right at the beginning, the Kuzari spoke about this last week, when he talks about, when the king speaks to him and says to him, like, how do you see Israel's position in the world in relation to other nations? So what the Kuzari says very clearly, and what's echoed in others for him also, is that the way we see the world is that there's, Klai Israel are in a, let's say, primary position in the world, and Everyone else is in secondary position. Now, I don't know if I said, I said this in series of Adin that you heard. I haven't said it in the context here. Um, I was once speaking to an English uh, pastor, and he wanted to prove to me uh, from the Bible that every person is important, and that uh, Hashem cares about every individual. And that in the opposite, which is said in history. And if that's the case, then why do we think that Klai Yisrael is special? If, if, every, if everything is created because Hashem wanted to be created, and then nothing was created for nothing, so then every person has value, it was created. So if that's the case, what do you think that we're special about it? Hashem, whatever Hashem created, He wanted there to be. So in what way do we consider ourselves more special? Or different? So I told him, I'll give you the marshal I gave him. I said to him that uh, in England, as a citizen of the country. So, you have certain rights as a citizen. There are certain expectations made of you. Right? There's a certain legal system which you, as a citizen of the country, and you're not writing for a society, you're meant to keep to the laws of the country, whatever they happen to be. In, in, in return, there are certain expectations you can have from the government. Right? You expect them to provide security, certain, maybe to provide street lights, to whatever, whatever uh, free education, a healthcare system, Whatever it is, whatever the system might be that a citizen expects from the government, okay, and as a citizen of the country, you, you have the obligations which are imposed on you as a citizen, and you have the rights which you expect the government to provide for you. So, but then you have a second element within the country also, and that's the army. The army has way more rules than the average citizen. The average citizen basically has to behave himself and pay tax. Right? But for the army, there are 100 more rules. What you can, what you can't, or what you have to do. And you have to obey orders, and you have to march, and you have to pray, and you have to be willing to bear weapons, and you have to risk your life if necessary. It's a completely different legal code if you happen to be a soldier. Right. On the other hand, the, the country gives much more to soldiers. They're going to give them a salary, they're going to take care of them much more. Right. 
So one second, they're all part of the same country. What's the difference? What's the difference? Why when it comes to the average citizen, are there much less expectations and there's much less government involvement in their life? Whereas when it comes to the army, there's much greater expectations, but on the other hand, there's much more remuneration. What's the reason? And the answer is partial. The citizens, them, they aren't the ones which are, making, which are the, you know, protecting the country or, uh, let's say, standing up to defend it. They're there, so they have to work within the system which is created for them. So as long as they're doing what they need to do and not interfering with anybody, we can leave them alone. They can enjoy themselves, they can make the most of their lives. They'll have to listen to the basic rules which will make a society function, and that's enough. Whereas when it comes to army, this is what you're basing the strength of the country. This is what the defense of the country is, this is what establishes the, 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 so to speak, the monarchy. And if that's the case, on the one hand, you need them to be able to do the job you want them to do. On the other hand, you have to, you have to give much more, you have to much more involved in that. So, of course, he was completely on board with that, he understood it 100%. So, so if that's the case, and I want to explain to you. There's a difference between uh, what we call, call Goye Haaretz. Anyone who's, uh, all the nations which are citizens of the world, they're living in the world. Okay? So, if, that, if that's the case, there are minimal expectations made of them, and that is that they're not going to do things which are going to interfere with the possibility of creating a society, you kind of theft, you kind of bloodshed, you kind of whatever else is going to be, which is going to interfere with the ability to have a running, so to speak, society in the world. So the expectations are minimal, but on the other hand, what the, the, the government involvement is also minimal. As long as they're doing whatever they want to do and not interfering with the system as it's meant to run. So they left to, they left to their own devices. I said that Masha Nathan, Klai Yisrael is an army. Klai Yisrael is an army. And if, if we're in, as an army, so the expectations of us are much more. As much as you can do and can't do, you have to, you have to, mustn't do. But on the other hand, the involvement with us is much more too. And why is it like that? Because the same you said. And that is, the citizens of the country aren't expected to establish the monarchy of the country. They're there, and we let them live their lives as long as they aren't interfering. And if Hashem created Goyim in the world, and they're there, and they're doing whatever they need to do, it's not what Hashem is relying on to establish Mount Hashemayim. So as long as they don't interfere, leave them alone. Mashiach and Kaisra has a mission. And as a mission, it's our job to fight and to establish what you call Mahfash and Maim in the world. And if that's okay, I would say in different words, but the idea, right, is that, that that's what we're here for. Hoiti is Tibis Hashem Eris Mitzrayim. We came here as an army, we came as an army to, to establish a monarchy, to establish Mahfash and Maim. And therefore, the way Hashem looks at it is different. And Hashem looks at it as different. You, you have a job to do, so of course, you have much more instructions because this is your marching orders. This is the way you're going to establish Hashem's Mahfash. On the other hand, you have much more privileges. You have much more privileges because as the army, obviously, if, if, if that's what the Malthus is resting on, you have to invest much more to make sure the soldiers are on board, so to speak, than the average citizen. So, to his credit, even this gentleman I'm speaking to can understand the point very well. And that's in the Quran. It's not a shayla of a lack of equality. It's not a shayla that we're going to say that these are, we were maybe Tzalem he wasn't maybe Tzalem but these are people, these aren't people, or whatever you're going to have, other words you're going to say. No. There's a, there's a differentiation between the, the job description, what's meant for us, and what's meant for everybody else. And yes, we don't try and convert everybody, because like in any country, unless you happen to be in North Korea, we don't need the whole population to be an army. There's a room for citizens. Right? We don't have to make everyone into a soldier. As long as there's an army which is, which is strong enough, so to speak, to protect the identity of the crown or the, the independence of the state, whatever it's going to be, then everyone else will be citizens. 
So Klai Yisrael have the job of being the soldiers, and everyone else aren't being all soldiers. They don't have that job. Okay. Now, if we understand the martial army, and we understand, therefore, we could use this last week when we spoke about racism as well, but to bring it to the next stage. If you understand this martial, then you understand another point also. And that is, within any army, they're the soldiers who we call the regular army. Now, if a person wants to sign up and become a soldier like everyone else, he can. He, then he's bound by all the rules of the law. He's living now in the legal code of the military. And it has, a, like we said, it's unclear. Same thing now. We said last week, uh, Garrus is open. If a person wants to now sign up, they can. It's the second, uh, it's the second category of people. The second category of people. And again, anywhere in the world you see the same thing. Let's call them military surprise or military military employed companies, whatever it's going to be. Which means, if you're going to, if you're a contractor for the military, you're working with the army in some, whatever it is. Not everybody working there is a soldier necessarily. If you're providing spare parts for the army vehicles, you're providing food for the soldiers. Sometimes it's in the army, sometimes it's outside. They take outside contractors to work for the army. But... It's not the same thing as a regular job. You're working for the army, which means if that's okay, certain of the army rules are going to apply to you. We don't, you can't give away secrets. You can't bring cameras to work. You can't. You have to keep up the deadlines. It's somewhere in between. You're working with the system which is behind you because you're an auxiliary to a system which is working with the chiyuv. So it's true. The average person who's in a, in a democratic society who's running his business, they can decide, I want to open today, I don't want to open today. I feel like selling, I don't feel like selling. I'm a free man, I can do what I like. One second. If you're employed by government contracts and you have to supply a certain amount, then you're not a free man. Then you have obligations and you have responsibilities and you're going to get penalized if you don't keep up to them. Because that you, that's the interface between, let's say, the, let's say this is the system which, which is uh, citizens and what's run by the military. Now it's true, in peacetime, the army doesn't care so much because they can find their own supplies. But in wartime, they're going to conscript people to force and make them work because they're going to need them for whatever job it is. And then you're working under military conditions. Not as soldiers necessarily, but you're working in the military environment. That's my marshal. So the idea of an evidence. That marshal is the other evidence. That's... The Rechad already says that the world is created... or the, that's the focus is the Mishra's Tehashem. The army of Hashem. But he needs an auxiliary force. Which are the Mishars and Mishars Hashem. So if, if the soldiers are the main force, then whoever's been providing the secondary role, the, the backup positions, the suppliers, whatever it's going to be down the chain of, of how things work, of supply, they're going to be the auxiliary force. And the same thing, like the Pasuk says, that uh, if Kaisra are meant to focus their energies and their efforts in Avodah Hashem, then who's going to be the one to sell their vineyards and plant their fields and, and harvest their crops and shepherd their sheep, whatever it's going to be. So that, that's the job of the Evadim. That's the job of an Evad. But it's an Evad for over the Hashem. That's the auxiliary force of the army. And if that's the case, yes, there's certain rules which apply. Just like we are Evadim to Hashem, so there's certain... Uh, someone that you want to take as an Evad is now being conscripted into the role of an Evad. It's like we said, an auxiliary army. Which are the terror sanctions it? Again, we said there are two principles which dictate what today, the idea of Avdus, is frowned upon. One is the principle of equality, the second is the principle of justice. The justice principle we're not arguing with. There's no, there is justice for our body too. There's no, like we said, it's not like the going thing that once or used to be in the world. 
that an Evid has no rights and, no, and uh, is a free-for-all. There's no recourse to law. That's not the case. An Evid currently definitely has rights and definitely has a recourse to the law. Like I said, even sometimes you'll kill the owner if he kills his Evid in certain circumstances. But uh, the first point, the equality principle, altogether, we said last week, Kai Yisrael rejects that. Kai Yisrael have a unique position in the world. We're an army. And if that's the case, somebody who's going to be an auxiliary also has a special job. Which is why an Evid Knani has some elements of a Jew. I'll never explain exactly why it's like a lady, that's a second issue. But the Nukhuda is that there's some elements like a Jew because in some way he's now working for the army. It's not just someone who's left, like we said, a citizen who's left his own devices. There's this interim stage which justifies the mocking for an Evid.